When I think of examples of faith and hope, I think of my great-grandmother, Skuhi Bohosian, whose last name became Paul when she came to America as a refugee during the Armenian genocide of the early 1900s. It was her faith that preserved her as she and her children were marched out of her hometown of Kesab, Syria, by the Turkish military and forced across a barren land all the way to Aleppo, from which point they eventually made their way across the Atlantic to America. Her faith kept her going the whole way, even as some of her children were forcibly taken from her and others died before her eyes of starvation and thirst. Her faith in God propelled her forward. But I wonder if she ever succumbed to grief. I wonder if there were moments where she had exercised her faith muscle a little too much and it just gave out. In our text today, that's exactly where we meet the prophet. To set the stage, let's get back into the historical setting of Isaiah that Pastor Ellie described last week. Many of the people of Judah were taken to Babylon in 587 BC after King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and sacked their sacred temple in the process. They remained there for about 60 years before the Persian ruler Cyrus defeated the Babylonians and eventually allowed the Judeans to return home. Isaiah 40 is set toward the end of the exilic period. It's set at one of the bleakest moments in Israel's history when hope had faded, if not disappeared. The passage we read here is the beginning of second Isaiah which switches the tone of the book from proclamations of judgment to those of future hope, prophecies of return, promises that God had forgiven the people and that they would once again know freedom. I know it will be hard, but try imagining yourselves in the Israelites' shoes. Imagine that something cataclysmic has happened in your life, not just to you, but to your whole community. Something like, oh, I don't know, say a global pandemic. Something that has changed your ability to worship as you'd like, to work as you'd used to. Something that removes the stability you'd worked so hard to secure. Perhaps this is a moment in history when we can better sympathize with what the Israelites were going through. So, as we walk through the text, let's ask ourselves, what's our reaction to words of consolation and hope in this moment? Comfort. O oh, comfort, my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term and that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This message of consolation is a divine word spoken by God's heavenly counsel. God tells a heavenly messenger to comfort the people. Let them know, God says, that they have suffered enough and it's time to return home. The text reflects the common view that Babylon had been able to conquer Judah because of Judah's sin against God. The people had not honored their covenant relationship with God, and so God finally got fed up and let them suffer the consequences of their actions. Of course, there were some who saw the sacking of the temple and started to wonder if their God was as powerful as they'd thought. How could God allow God's dwelling place on earth to be overrun like that? The people now suffered from a lack of hope. Some because they thought God had deserted them, 
and some because they doubted whether their god was as powerful as the Babylonians' gods. So, we can understand why a sudden proclamation of hope might have been hard to accept. Returning to our text, a voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, we hear from the heavenly court describing God's triumphant return to Jerusalem, bringing the exiles back home. To go home, the rough terrain of the desert must be crossed, all the way from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So, the path will be flattened, obstacles all overcome for an easy return. The reference to a road here would have also invoked specific images for the exiles. See, the great roads leading to Babylon were used as parade routes for the Babylonian king and images of the Babylonian gods. They would be processed down the great highway leading to the city so they could display their power, wealth, and majesty. So, here the poet of Second Isaiah addresses the doubts about God's power. He counters these images of foreign powers and false gods with a procession by the only one who truly holds any power at all the God of Israel. But there were no graven images of God to be paraded about. That was strictly forbidden. And not even Moses was allowed to see God in all God's splendor. So what procession could demonstrate God's might? What could be seen with human eyes to display God's glory? The theologian Klaus Westermann says that what reveals Yahweh's glory is his actions in history. Therefore, the highway which is to be made through the desert is the way on which Yahweh now gives proof of himself in a new and quite unlooked-for historical act, the way for leading his people home. God's glory isn't wealth, the spoils of war, artful images, but in God's faithfulness to God's people. This is how the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people see it together. God promised the people would return home, and so they will. But as we said earlier, this message of hope may not have been easy for the people to accept. The next part of our passage is a dialogue between one of the heavenly voices and the person being commissioned as a prophet. This is the call to prophecy for the one we call Second Isaiah. As with most Old Testament prophets, this one is not excited about being called into the prophecy business. But unlike other prophets, he is not troubled by having to proclaim a message of doom and gloom. Instead, he's given a message of hope to proclaim, and he cannot find it within himself to accept it. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The prophet, speaking for himself and his exiled nation, hears these words of hope and can only respond with lament and despair. Westerman says that the prophet speaks the thoughts of 
a vanquished nation that no longer believes in the possibility of any new beginning. After almost 60 years being cut off from their homeland, unable to worship as their God decreed, unable to control their own lives, despair makes sense. What's the point? The prophet seems to ask. We're all just grass. Our nation is destroyed. Our people are in the process of fading away. Why bother us with hope? There is no hope for us. When I read the prophet's short but powerful lament for his people, I couldn't help but think of Skuhi and the countless other Armenians who were, and sadly continue to be, persecuted. How can you have hope not just for yourself, but for your people, when the deck seems to be so heavily stacked against you? Wouldn't it be easier to just fold? And how many of us can connect with the prophet's lament right now? For how many of us do words of hope and comfort ring hollow? At best, we've been inconvenienced to the point that all of our rituals and rhythms of our lives have been thrown off. Holidays alone, relationships strained, routines decimated. At worst, we've lost jobs. We've lost loved ones. We've lost our sense of security. Perhaps we need to sit in this lament for a while. Perhaps we're not ready for the next few verses of Isaiah quite yet. But since we do need to get through the service, I'll continue on. The heavenly voice agrees with the prophet, but reminds the new prophet of the only thing that matters. It says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God has made a covenant with Israel. God has promised to be with God's people. God has promised them a future and the promises of God never fail. When my great grandmother and a few of her children made it to Aleppo, she found work doing laundry for the German soldiers stationed there. She would leave her children in a certain place to play and then return to them after work. One day she went back for them and they were gone. I wonder if in that moment, her faith cracked and hope finally disappeared. She ran through the streets crying their names. Then she heard a voice calling to her. A Turkish soldier approached her saying, Mama, are you looking for your children? Yes, what have you done with them? She demanded to know. He offered her his hand. Come, I'll take you to them. I wonder if she had the capacity to believe him in that moment, or if, like the prophet, she was tempted to resign herself to grief. Could the Turkish soldier, by all accounts an enemy, actually be offering her hope? Whatever she was feeling, she went with him. She followed the voice of hope and he took her to a safer location where her children had been moved and they were together again. It is so important that my family members, that my family remembers these stories. It's important that we retell them generation after generation. And how we tell them, how we frame these stories is just as important. The stories we tell, the lessons we glean from them, that's how we develop as a community. 
My family tells stories of the faith that preserved our ancestors. We tell the stories of the brave and kind Turks who helped them along the way, even though they too might have suffered at the hands of their own government for aiding Armenians. These stories teach us the power of faith, the importance of hope, the common humanity we share with all people, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, or religion. Our stories have made us a resilient community. We see the power of stories and of corporate memory all throughout the Bible. In fact, that's what the Bible is, right? Reading through the Bible each year, walking through God's story using the church calendar, that's how we remember God's faithfulness to the Israelites and through them, God's faithfulness to the whole world. We remember that God rescued Israel from Egypt. We remember that God returned the people from exile. And we remember that God redeemed the whole world through the sacrifice of God's own son. A voice reminds the prophet, the word of our God will stand forever. And it's a call to remember, to remember what that word is and to act out of that hope that the word provides. There's a lot of suffering in the Bible. There's a lot of people whose lives didn't go the way they wanted. There's a lot of lament, and those laments are important. We need them. We need to be able to express grief and voice doubt. But while those texts are a part of the story, they are not its framework. The initial authors and compilers of the Bible didn't frame their story with nihilism. They framed it with hope, with trust, with the honest-to-God truth that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. As we wait in the season of Advent, wait for the arrival of hope, wait for 2020 to finally be over, I think it's important for us to think about how we will frame the stories of this year when it is over. The stories we tell and how we frame those stories will determine how we as individuals and as a community move on from here. Can our experience of this challenging year fit into a framework of hope? Can we learn resilience through these difficulties? Can we express our grief and talk about our suffering without allowing it to have the last word? We can't pretend this year never happened. We can't forget the struggles and we shouldn't. We don't have the power to change what has happened, but we do have the power to decide how it will shape us moving forward. We haven't been able to gather together in months. It might be over a year before we can once more all be together in our beautiful church building. And that's a tragedy. It's certainly worth lament. It's certainly worthy of lament. But God's presence is not bound by that or by any building. We are always together, always connected in the body of Christ. God has been doing great things in and through us even this year. It wasn't a waste of a year. Our ministry hasn't been put on pause. It may feel like an exile, but God was at work even in the exile. Throughout the Bible, we see examples of people trying to reframe the story. That's what happens in 2 Peter, just a few verses before today's New Testament reading. The beginning of the chapter reads, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So there's that call to remember again. 
Above all, you must understand that in the days that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The author of Second Peter is describing an attempt to reframe the story, right? Do you hear that? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. There's no hope for a second coming. There's no hope for anything new. The grass withers, the flower fades, it's the same sentiment. But they deliberately forget that God formed the earth. There was nothing, then God created, and God continues to create. We don't serve a deist God who wound the world's clock up tight and just lets it keep ticking on and on. We serve a God who acts, a God who makes promises and keeps them. The world does not go on as it has since the beginning of creation. We live in a world where miracles are possible, where the kingdom of God is being established even now. That's our frame. That's the hope that will sustain our community. God is at work in and through us. God is present in the creative ways we gather virtually, in the stories people have been recording to share with our children, in the ways we are partnering, partnering with the Bird Bar Food Bank, in the creation of our first virtual Yule Fest that we'll be able to participate in together in just a few hours. It'll take more than a pandemic to stop God's movement in our community and in our world. My desire for you, for us as a community, is that we can place even our stories of pain and suffering within the framework of hope, just as God's people have done from the beginning of time. Amen.